me ask you a rhetorical question. Why don't people believe in Jesus? I mean, some people do. But what about everybody else? I mean, you've got atheists. You've got agnostics. You've got Buddhists and Baptists and Mormons and Catholics and Hindus. Just keep going on. Why is there all this different belief? Is it really that confusing? But I want to focus in on this morning on the one question of belief, specifically as it revolves around Jesus himself. I'm going to give to you, this is the third part, some messianic prophecy. Prophecy from the Old Testament that shows what the Messiah would be like, and it fits to Jesus. Now, you can look the world over, and all those names I've mentioned, they don't have a book outside of the Bible filled with prophecy. There's only one book filled with verifiable prophecy. So to me, it's not that confusing at all. You've got not 20 options, you've got one. The Bible. Take it or leave it. But I think what has happened is so many people have left it, and then there was a hole in their, in their soul, and they wanted to fill it with something. And so they came up with something else. I wish I could tell you, with just the right smart argument, you can argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. But you can't argue anybody into the kingdom of heaven. You can give ironclad, solid proof that God exists, that he sent Jesus to die for your sins and rise again. That doesn't mean somebody's going to follow him. Look at the story of the Bible. Moses crossed the Red Sea. A few days later, they're worshiping the golden calf. The intellect is only a small part of what it takes to believe in God. I can help you with the intellect, and hopefully your intellect will hit the other part, which is your volition or your will. A human being is intellect, emotion, and will. So we can talk all day about the arguments for believing in God, but we're only a third of the way there. Emotion? Emotions are fickle, but they are a real part of human beings, and sometimes our emotions drive us to God, and sometimes our emotions drive us away. Not properly, but it's so. If you were raised, for example, in a Jewish home, and you were assaulted and abused and insulted by Catholic people, you might have a tendency not to be interested in Jesus. Now, the reason I say that isn't because all Catholics are anti-Semites, far from it, but the Catholic Church for the last 2,000 years, has been the biggest, biggest anti-Semitic institution on the planet. So I'm not just throwing that out as an insult. I'm just giving you some history. So you can see why you might be able to convince a Jewish person the Bible says Jesus is the Messiah, but they've been insulted and assaulted by people who claim to follow him their whole lives. They're not interested. Can't argue somebody through that. Say, well, wait a minute. Jesus himself was Jewish. So they weren't following Jesus. Okay, that's the intellect. How do we get through the emotion? We've got to use our minds to get through to the emotion. That's all we got. And then there's the will. That was the problem with the people who left Egypt and crossed through the Red Sea. They knew God existed. They just didn't want to follow him. They liked doing things that God didn't want them to do more than they liked God. Intellect, emotion, will. Well, we're going to be looking at Messianic prophecy, and I'm going to be focusing it to a Jewish mindset. And you're thinking, great, Steve, we're not Jewish. No, you're not. But listen to this passage of Scripture. I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We have a responsibility as Christian people to bring the gospel to Jewish people. So today's lesson, hopefully, will empower you to do that to some extent. Over the last three weeks, though, really, we've been doing that. We looked at Messianic prophecy, and we saw that the Bible very obviously and plainly said 700 years before Jesus was born that when the Messiah comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem. And he'll come, it was dated in the Bible, before the temple was destroyed. And we saw that the date tied to when Jesus came riding in on the donkey and everybody saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That was written in the Bible too, hundreds of years before Jesus came. The Bible also said that when the Messiah comes, he will be born of a virgin. And we looked at that last week. And the significance of that, God and God alone can take away our sin. But in order to do that, he's got to die for our sins and God can't die. So somehow we needed a human who is capable of dying, but more than a human, because a human can't take away sin. So God came up with this amazing thing through the virgin birth where God and man were one. That way he could be God, strong enough to take away our sins, and man, weak enough to die. And that was the significance of the virgin birth, and we saw that last week. What are the odds of somebody fulfilling three messianic prophecies in a row? By the time we're done today, I will give you the literal odds of fulfilling eight. But let's just play a little game with odds. I want you to understand how stunning it is when we talk about odds. Speaking of odds, thousand pennies. One of them has the letter M written on it, M for Messiah. If Nathaniel came up here and randomly plucked one out, why don't you stand here just for a moment, don't pluck yet. What are the odds of him grabbing the one with an M? It's not impossible. It's one in a thousand. Well, I don't know how much money is this, but anybody want to match it? I'm betting he's not going to get the one with the M on it. Anybody want to match it saying he will? What's the matter? You'll match it saying he will? Thank you. You're going to owe me five, six, seven, eight. We'll give it to missions. All right. Eight bucks. Don't look. <laughs> Is there an M on it? No? That's all right, Steve. I love you, man. Let's try again. Did you get the M? Now, doing it once is one in a thousand. Doing it twice changed the odds dramatically three times. Still one in a thousand. See, he'd have to sit here and do that a thousand times, theoretically, to get the one with the M on it. Thank you very much. Now, what if I said, what are the odds of him pulling one out with the M, one in a thousand, two times in a row? Three times in a row. Because the numbers grow exponentially to where you get to a point where you say, it's just impossible. It's just impossible. By the way, one in a thousand wasn't going to happen, and you knew it wasn't going to happen. What if that was 10,000? What if it was 100,000? What if I had a million pennies here? They say your odds of winning the lottery are less than one in five million. 
and yet none of you were willing to put up money for one in a thousand. Just an interesting thing to think on. I'm going to give you the real statistics of Messiah fulfilling eight before we go home this morning. I guarantee only one thing, it will blow your mind. When I share the fact that I believe Jesus is the Messiah with Jewish people, a common argument I have heard is that he can't be the Messiah. There's no world peace. Because Judaism teaches that when the Messiah comes, he will bring peace on earth. Heck, even the Bible says peace on earth, goodwill towards men. They are not wrong. I tell them, you're right. The Bible does say that when the Messiah comes, he will bring world peace. Well, there you go then. He's not the Messiah. Oh, yes, he is. Some people throw that out as an excuse not to believe. I said, intellect, emotion, will. But sometimes it's an opportunity for further discourse. Well, then how can you possibly believe he's the Messiah if the Messiah didn't bring world peace? And here's what I say. I say, you're right. The Bible says when Messiah comes, he will bring world peace. The Bible also says that when the Messiah comes, he will be rejected by his own people, crucified, die for their sins, and rise again. No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. So what I'm going to share with you is passages of Scripture about world peace and then passages of Scripture about how the Messiah is to be rejected. And we're going to have to come up with a synthesis to understand the Bible. Because obviously they just shared with me half the picture. You can't have an argument or a belief based on half the data, which they do. So we have the benefit of sharing the other half. Will Messiah bring peace? You know it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2. In the, last days of the, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. When the Messiah comes, there will be no more war. Later on in Isaiah, it says this, Wolves and sheep will live together in peace, and leopards will lie down with young goats, Calves and lion cubs will feed together and little children will take care of them. It blows my mind. See, like a five-year-old with a rope and on the back end of the rope is a full-grown 800-pound lion and the kid's just walking the kid through town. It's going to happen. Cows and bears will eat together. Cubs will feed together. Then it says, um, lions will eat straw as cattle do. Even a baby will not be harmed if it plays near a poisonous snake. Lions will eat straw. Some people have said, ha, the Bible can't be trusted. Everybody knows a lion can't live on a vegetarian diet. Come on. Well, I would have said the same thing about humans. But I know some vegetarians who are doing quite well. It's not easy but it's doable. True story, featured in Creation Magazine. It's a scientific journal for lay people by Christian scientists, that is, Christians 
who are scientists, not Christian scientists, who believe that the Bible is true. And the article was called something like Throwback to Eden or something, because remember, in the Garden of Eden, we were all vegetarians. In fact, it wasn't until the flood of Noah that we started killing animals and eating them. Humans were intended to be vegetarians, as were cows, as were lions. But because things fell apart, things changed. But they're going to go back to the way they were someday. And they had this lion cub that refused to eat meat. All of the veterinarians said, you've got to get this thing to eat meat or it will sicken and die. So they would give it milk and it would lap it up and they'd put in a drop of blood just to start to give it a taste for blood and it wouldn't drink the milk anymore. So they started giving it things like cheese and rice, which it would eat, but as soon as they put in a fleck of meat, it turned his nose away. Well, by the time this article was written, this thing weighed like 800 pounds. It's like the biggest tiger I'd ever seen and it was still a vegetarian. People say, oh, that, that couldn't happen. It's happening now. It can happen. It will happen again. On Zion, God's sacred hill, there will be nothing harmful or evil. The land will be as full of knowledge of the Lord as the seas are full of water. These are the types of passages of Scripture that Jewish people will say, this is what it's supposed to be like when Messiah comes. And I tell you, you're right. You're absolutely right. Then I tell them about the other parts. And I said, and by the way, what I'm sharing with you isn't like mine. This is known history. In fact, rabbinic tradition wrestled with the very concepts that you and I are talking about right now. They saw passages of Scripture that said Messiah will usher in world peace and passages of Scripture that Messiah will be rejected and die, and they came up with a solution. They came up with two Messiahs. Let me read to you from a book called The Messiah Texts by Raphael Patai. Dr. Raphael Patai, Jewish scholar, not a believer in Jesus, but this book is amazing. It's a compendium of Jewish thought about the Messiah throughout the ages. I mean, if you're a serious student about studying these things, that's a must-have book. Here's what he wrote about this concept. When the death of the Messiah became an established tenet, this was felt to be irreconcilable with the belief in the Messiah as the Redeemer, who would usher in a blissful millennium of the Messianic age. The dilemma was solved by splitting the person of the Messiah in two. So basically, two Messiahs. So according to rabbinic Judaism, there are two Messiahs. One Messiah who will be rejected and die for our sins. In one place, he's even called the leper, the leper Messiah, because they know how despised he'll be. One Messiah who dies for our sins, and another Messiah who rules and reigns. They say the Messiah who rules and reigns is from the tribe of David, and the one who dies is from the tribe of Israel, or Joseph. There's even a Jewish writing that says the Messiah from the tribe of David will resurrect from the dead the Messiah from the tribe of Joseph. So in Jewish writings, there is a Messiah who is rejected, dies for the sins of the people, and is resurrected from the dead. Now, my people don't know this, but we can tell them and inform them because they think, oh, that's just all Christianity and Christianity made up its own stuff. So, well, you're right, it is Christianity, but Christianity is simply a fulfillment of Judaism. There's nothing made up in it. And it blows their mind. They may not even believe you because it's not just the intellect that we're dealing with. There's the emotion and there's will. As, and I said this before, maybe last week or the week before. We all 
have this kind of thing going on in our lives all the time. We're all prejudiced against certain things and we're committed to certain things. We might be committed to certain things even if that thing's not worthy to be committed to. I usually vote Republican, but I'm not a diehard Republican. I vote for the candidate I think will do best, the candidate that shares my value. It can be a Democrat, it could be a Green, it could be an Independent. If he shares my value, he gets my vote. I don't care what party he's from. But there are some people who say, I will vote Republican and I will die Republican. To them, it's all being Republican. There are some people who are Lakers fans. They will die Lakers fans. Even if Lakers lose year after year after year, they'll still be Lakers fans. It's not intellectual at this point. It's emotional. We're committed to certain things just because we like them, not because they're necessarily the best. So, according to Rabbinic Judaism, two separate messiahs. According to uh, Messianic Judaism, also Christianity, one messiah, two comings. Now, that works better for me. I think that fits the biblical picture much better. One Messiah, he comes the first time to make possible peace between man and God. He's rejected, he dies for our sins and rises again. He comes back the second time to make peace between man and man. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It works, it fits. Well, many of my people know about, not all, but many know about the peace on earth, but they don't know about the rejected Messiah. So I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 53 in Psalm 2, two of the key places that talk about the rejected Messiah. Here's what it says, Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom, med, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The rejected Messiah. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Messiah, same Hebrew word. The rulers take stands against the Lord's Messiah saying, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. So the Bible says that the Messiah will be rejected in Psalm 2 by all the nations in Isaiah 53 by Israel, by Jews and Gentiles together. In fact, that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. He was rejected by both. The Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling body, decided they wanted to execute him, but they didn't have the authority to do so, so they brought him to Pilate. Said, we want him executed. And Pilate says, I don't find any reason to execute him. Well, you better, because we're un unhappy. And Herod wouldn't appreciate it. Herod, oh, Herod's in town. Let Herod judge him. Pilate, Roman. Herod, Jewish. So the Roman governor sent him to the Jewish guy, Herod. Herod said, hey, he's an all right guy. Send him back to Pilate. So he was tried before Jewish authorities and Gentile authorities. In fact, the Apostle Peter talked about this prophecy in Acts chapter 4. This is what he said. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Prophecy after prophecy about the Messiah is fulfilled exactly. 
in Jesus. Psalm 2, he would be rejected by Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus was. But Psalm 2 says more than just him being rejected. And I told you some of this stuff just blows the Jewish mind because nobody teaches us our own belief system. Nobody says, oh yeah, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem and die for our sins and rise again. We're not taught that. We're taught that that's Christianity and that's the other team and we don't root for that team. We're Lakers fans. So we don't want to have anything to do with that because that's their other team. Oh, that's your team. That's home team. You're mistaken. Lakers stole that. It's yours too. But they don't know that. Here's another thing that blows Jewish minds. Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Now, if you're raised in a Christian home, that's nothing. But if you're raised in a Jewish home and you see that the Jewish Bible says God has a son, your head pops. Because that's the other team. We don't believe that. We don't believe God has a son. Yes, we do. It's right there in Psalm 2, and it's in the Proverbs also. It's a very Jewish concept, but we're not taught that. Well, I've told you this before, but it's important that you know. And if you're here for the first time, that this is new, maybe news to you. Islam thinks that when we say Jesus is the son of, son of God, that God had relations with Mary and produced the child, Jesus. And they say, we would never believe that. That's blasphemy. You Christians are weird. I say, we wouldn't believe that either. What are you talking about? That's not what we believe. It's a misunderstanding of what we believe. Well, that's how you make a son, isn't it? Well, that's one way. It is the most popular. <laughs> but it isn't the only way to make a son. There are sons by adoption. There are son of a guns. See, God made Adam out of dirt. Pick up a bottle of multivitamins and look at the ingredients. Iron, copper, zinc. We are made out of dirt. Do you know Adam means dirt? It means earth. You could just say, instead of it saying Adam and Eve, it could say dirt man. <laughs> and mother of life. Yeah, dirt man. So, God made Adam from dirt and called him Dirt Man. Made Eve out of Adam, and she got a nice name, Chava or Chaya, life, the mother of all living. And if God can make a man out of dirt and a woman out of man, how hard is it for him to create life inside a womb? It, it's not a problem at all. And we talked about that, you know, last week with the virgin birth. So we don't mean that God had a son in the same way you have a son, but he's still the son of God. Here's how the angel put it when he talked to Mary about what was going to happen. Luke chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, here's how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. He's got a human mother, so he's a human. But God, the Word of God, came into her womb and was born, so she's, he's also the Son of God. By the way, in the East, in the old days, in the ancient East, 
Son wasn't just a physical word. It had legal connotation and cultural connotation. A son carried the honor and authority of, of the father. Do you remember Jesus talked about that in a parable? He said he had a vineyard, he leased it out, and then they beat the servants he sent. He said, finally, I'll send my son. They'll respect him. Son carries the authority of the father. So in our culture, we look at a son as being under the father. And I guess in status they, they are, but in that culture, a son carries the honor of the father almost like a prince. Look at it that way. You know that the prince is the next king. He's just the king in waiting. And when this prince says frog, you jump because the prince is the prince. Also, a son carries the nature of his father. Calling Jesus the son of God is a, a, an expression, not of physical birth, but an expression of his authority and of his nature. He is divine. That's why he's called the son of God. By the way, um, the stuff I'm sharing with you, Jewish people don't believe, but it's in the Jewish Bible. And I was talking to you about Isaiah 53. And, well, let me read to you from Isaiah 53, give you the rabbinic response, and then I want to show you something cool. Pull it out so I don't forget. The rest of Isaiah 53. So just so you know, so far we've seen Messiah is the Son of God, according to the prophecy. This was written way before Jesus came. He would be the Son of God. He would be rejected by men. He would usher in a glorious paradise, but it also teaches he'll die and rise again. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. I'm gonna read some more, but let me tell you a true story. Sitting down with a Jewish woman, She'd never read the Bible before. She came from a country where it was illegal to own one. She was from Russia, back before the Iron Curtain fell. And uh, she came to this country, and she asked what I believed and why I believed it. And I told her, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and yet I'm Jewish, and I think all Jewish people should believe he's the Messiah. Well, why? Let me let you read something. And I had her read this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, not complaining. A sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their sins, bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I told her, that's why I believe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, obviously, that's in the New Testament. No, I just read to you from the Jewish Bible. That's from the Old Testament. She didn't believe me. She had to get the book and look at it. And then she was speechless because I blew her mind. Now she's got the emotion and the will to contend with. But the ar argument is ironclad. Well, then why don't they believe? Intellect, emotion, will. She said, well, what did the rabbi say about that? I say, well, the rabbi say that chapter doesn't refer to the Messiah at all. It refers to the nation of Israel. Now, let me give you the answer I, I have to that. But before I do, the typical rabbinic response today is that passage only deals with the nation of Israel. Ancient Jewish commentators, this many, said it dealt with Messiah. <laughs> So when I give it a messianic interpretation, I'm not just trying to force a Christian interpretation on it. It's a well-established and believed Jewish tradition that that refers to the Messiah too. But because it so obviously looks like Jesus, they had to come up with something else because they don't believe in Jesus. So I told her, the rabbis say this deals with the nation of Israel, not with Jesus. And she realized what everybody else realized. That's not even possible. That's not even tenable. That's almost a laughable argument. It says things like this. He took up our infirmities. He was pierced for our transgressions. We and our is Israel. Then who's he? He can't be both he and us at the same time. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds, we are healed. There was no violence or deceit in his mouth. He was despised and rejected. We're not despising and rejecting ourselves and then dying for ourselves and rising for us. It doesn't work. It doesn't even come close to working. It's nonsensical. And that's the best argument they got. Then everybody should believe in Jesus. Yes, they should. But they don't. Why should everybody believe in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles? Because there's only one book loaded with verifiable prophecy. God sent one book, and it's obvious the Bible. It's obvious. There's no arguing against it. If it was only one messianic prophecy and the odds were one in a thousand, I wouldn't be so vehement. So, Steve, what are the odds? Well, just this morning I shared with you he'll make peace on earth. He was rejected by men, died for our sins. Psalm 2 calls him the Son of God. Psalm 2 says something else about him. But before I show you what it says about him, what if we took eight messianic prophecies? What would the odds be of one person fulfilling all eight together? Remember, I told you, as you add it, it gets more and more complex. I've got a video clip that'll answer that question for you. Let's take a look. How do you know what's true is really true? That's where the evidence comes in. Christ's offer to turn you into a new person is real. If his claim to be God is true. So let's consider the evidence of eight prophecies proving his claim is true. Probability factor is of only eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus. No. A one in ten to the seventeenth power. One in ten to the seventeenth power. Huh? That's 
one in ten to this many times. I don't get it. If you were to take ten to the seventeenth power Girl Scout Thin Mint Cookies. How many? That's over a quintillion cookies. And spread them across the state of Texas. Yeehaw! They would cover every inch of the state and form a pile of Girl Scout Thin Mint Cookies two feet deep. That's a lot of Thin Mints. A whole lot of Thin Mints. Now take one more Thin Mint and lick all the chocolate off, toss it into that pile and stir the whole thing up. Blindfold yourself, walk the entire state from Amarillo to Laredo, stopping just once to stoop down and pick a single blind Thin Mint Cookie. Take off the blindfold. Aw, oh, nuts. The chances of you picking the chocolateless cookie is the same as the chance that one person could have fulfilled just eight prophecies about Jesus in one lifetime. That's crazy. It's unthinkable. But Jesus Christ did not fulfill eight prophecies in one lifetime. Whoa. He fulfilled over 300. 300 now! Whoa. And 29 of them in just one day. The prophecies are historically documented. The facts that actually happened to Jesus are historically documented. There's only one thing left to do. I know. For me to weigh the evidence. It's all part of the evidence. I know those of you who have been with us for a few years have seen that clip before. It's just so stunning. Just overwhelming. There without exaggeration, because I've seen other websites that talk about prophecy and stuff, the odds of one person fulfilling all these messianic prophecy, if you were to compare it to all the atoms in the universe, the odds are greater. So when we talk about impossible, I'm not exaggerating, it's impossible. 29 prophecies in one day, impossible when the odds of him fulfilling just eight are one in 10 to the 17th power. And if you, didn't get, if you couldn't hear that, and for those who just might be hearing an audio portion of it, covering the entire state of Texas with thin mint cookies. How many of you have ever driven through Texas? Almost everybody's hand up is in here, Tucson people, what are you gonna do? How many of you wished you hadn't? <laughs> I know, huh? I got to drive out just to Midland in a couple weeks and it's going to be 10 hours and I'm just getting into the state. It's insane. It's a big state. It's bigger than most countries. Cover the whole thing two feet deep in cookies, blindfold and reach down and pick up the one with the M on it. Just the right one. What are the odds? One in 10 to the 17th power. You can't do it. You can't do it. Only eight messianic prophecies. Psalm 2 said that the Messiah would be rejected by people. That's just one of the 300 so prophecies. But I told you it said more about him in Psalm 2. It said he would be the son of God, which blows Jewish people's minds. But it goes on and says more about him being the son of God. Listen to what it says, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, the NIV usually does a pretty good job, but I like the King James better for this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a, but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. So here's what it says, Psalm 2. 
The Messiah will come, but people are going to reject him. But blessed are those that don't. Kiss him and trust him. What do you mean kiss him? Honor him. Worship him. Give him the honor due to the Messiah. Blessed are all those who trust him. God wants to bless everybody on this planet. The offer to follow Jesus is open to all. And Jesus died for everybody. But only those who kiss the Son, who embrace Him, who believe in Him and trust Him, will be blessed by God, will have their sins forgiven, and have an eternity in heaven. No other belief system compares. They're not even worth arguing about. We've got the Bible. It's just a matter of taking it or leaving it. And of course, it's my prayer and my hope that you'll take it. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for giving us such overwhelming evidence through messianic prophecy about Jesus being the one. But Lord, there's emotion to deal with and there's intellect to deal with. Give us the heart to share the gospel in such a way that we can help people emotionally too, not just intellectually. And as for the will, Lord, you know it is stubborn and stiff. And we don't know how to inspire people to turn from their sins and trust and kiss the Son. But if there's anything we can do to help people inherit heaven, show us. Teach us to be godly, loving, kind people so that people will want to hear what we have to say and trust the things that we have to say. And may we gently, with respect and humility, present the picture from the Word of God to whosoever will. God, call many people to Jesus, for it's in His name that we pray. Amen. Manhuddle, oh yeah. If you're a man, meet me over here. Thanks, Jose. We, we just need you for five minutes. Meet me over here, man. The Bible says that, that words have the power of life. Let me start with that one there. So that, that means that our words can, can energize others, our words can motivate others, or our words can inspire others. And at the same time, the Bible also says that the words, our words can have the power of death. So that means that our words can destroy others, our words can cause others to lose heart, and our words can cause others to despair. Now I'm sure that we all have some memory, some time, where our fathers or those, those that we looked up to, in, in one of those moments of our failure, came out with words, not necessarily of inspiration, but words of condemnation. And yet at the same time, those same, those same lips uttered words of affirmation somewhere down the road. Mixed messages for all of us, but we've all experienced those things. It's been said that uh, they surveyed some successful executives, and these, these folks can remember, these men can remember the time that their fathers failed to give them affirmation as a child. The result was either overachievement to prove their own worth or underachievement to prove that their fathers were right about what they said in condemnation. 
the verse of scripture I'd like for you guys to remember, and it's a, it's a bulky one, but it's Ephesians 5, 21 through Ephesians 6, 20. The one I want to stand out is verse 21 in chapter 5, and it says, we are to submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. There's been many a wife who has lost her ability to love because of a critical husband. Many a husband that has left his marriage because of words of disrespect and ungratefulness from their spouses. There's been many a child that has left home dis- discouraged due to destructive words. Stories abound regarding the power of words that have destroyed relationships. There are, there are just as many stories for those of those that have been encouraged, challenged, and comforted with words that made a difference in their lives. Jesus knew the power of words. He used parables to convey his principles to the kingdom to, of the kingdom of God. He used words of forgiveness and mercy, and he used words to challenge. He used words to inspire his disciples to miraculous faith. Do your words give life or do they give death? Here's my challenge for you men. As men who who are believers and who love God. Number one, that we would become men who understand the power behind our words. Number two, that before God we would determine as God gives us strength and power through his indwelling Holy Spirit that we would be men who use our words for life. And here's where we start. We start with our wives. And then we go to our our kids, our sons and our daughters. Then we go to our parents, moms, dads, grandparents. Then we go with those that we work with every day. And then we can go to the rest of the world. So that's my challenge for you guys. Remember that every time we we open our mouths, there is the power of life or death there. And my prayer for you, for you men, is that we choose life every time. All right, hands in, guys. On the count of three, we got Jesus going. You ready? One, two, three. Jesus! Jesus!